This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. On the Margins podcast. We are delighted to help shore up some of the stories from this season with a deep dive into community organizing, both historically and what's happening right now. I am joined by two of my favorite young organizers from North Carolina, and I've asked them to join us today to help share a little bit more about their origin story, their connections historically, and what it means for the future of North Carolina to really embrace a community organizing mindset. This is important to us because obviously the work of Creed is looking at and developing some of the community organizing efforts across North Carolina as it relates to educational equity. We have some momentum by doing listening sessions across the state through Freedom Hill. But of course, we have to extend that work. It's the kind of work that happens every single day and relies on relationships and us constantly keeping in touch with each other um, and supporting each other in our work. Um, So... I want to move quickly into this discussion in part because I know uh, they have a lot to say. Um, So I'm going to introduce our guests today and welcome their voices into the room as we begin to have a conversation about the pace of change in North Carolina and what it means to invite community organizers voice into that. So our first guest is Clarissa Brooks. She is a community organizer, a writer and cultural worker. Her work has been featured in Teen Vogue. And I met Clarissa years ago at an ESFER training. And um, ESFER stands for Students for Educational Reform. Here in Charlotte, North Carolina, there was a group training in which we were able to uh, not only connect about the organizing principles, but we had a little chat afterwards. um, And I was delighted to hear where the work was going and what the vision was. So I'm so glad that Clarissa can join us today. Um, And then... Uh, Our next guest is Myra Stefania Arteaga, who I have known for years um, and um, comes to us today with a particular lens around immigrant rights. Uh, She's a strategist based in North Carolina, based right here in Charlotte, has done extensive work um, with law enforcement and ICE, um, helped launch Comunidad Colectiva um, with another dear friend of mine, and is continuously pressing on that work to think about and look at the rights, the human rights, the basic human rights that we all share, and how can we make sure that we're talking about that um, in the context of what humans are experiencing right here in North Carolina every single day. So uh, without further ado, I would love for you all to tell me a little bit more about that moment, the moment that gets you into the work, the moment that had sparked your interest in organizing, um, and it may be a people, uh, it may be a person or a place or a particular instance that kind of sparked your interest in this? Um, I actually feel like my radicalization as an organizer happened in college outside of Charlotte, but my lived experience was kind of always moving me that direction. Um, and I'll say probably um, growing up in Greer Heights and on the west side of Charlotte, um, I just had a lot of early experiences with CMPD, um, with the CMS school system that taught me very early that um, 
I was not going to have an easy life. Um, and that just always felt unfair to me. I was definitely always that kid asking questions, um, but also like very much tokenized in uh, the CMS programs as well. So um, I had a lot of privileges, but I also was having very real lived experiences that kind of always um, navigated me towards being interested in justice and change as a critical part of my life. Yeah, thank you for introducing us to that tension um, of understanding that you have privilege while simultaneously also knowing that your lived experience is exposing you to things that are going to have that lasting impression, um, sometimes traumatic, sometimes having long lasting impact that is going to possibly change the trajectory of your life. All right, Myra. I think for me, I think when I think about um, the spark that put me in this path, I think about two different times in my life. Um, one was very early on when I moved to the States from El Salvador. I um, lived in a very small town. Um, it was a fishing community out in Massachusetts, and we actually experienced the first um, workplace raid under the Bush administration. And it had been the biggest raid under his administration. It was a new tactic that was being used. Um, and I was probably around nine, 10 at the time. Um, and the images of seeing ICE, uh, INS back then, if ICE wasn't a thing. Um, no, it, it was ICE, sorry, it was ICE. Um, the vivid images of seeing ICE pulling people out of a military, um, manufacturers, uh, factory, um, people who had broken legs because they tried to jump fences and then going back to our local church, um, and seeing all these women and children who, um, were trying to figure out how to find their loved one. Um, and then moving fast forwarding to, you know, 08, the economic crisis, my family trying to find, um, some stability, after we lost our home and moving to East Charlotte. Um, and uh, we actually moved uh, the first year that our sheriff signed a contract to voluntarily work with ICE. Um, and just learning about my identity and my dad always saying, be careful, any mistake you make, any hiccup uh, can land you back to El Salvador. Um, and so, definitely be seeing early on the impact of family separation and the exploitation of labor um, and moving to the east side where it was common to see the sheriff's officers um, do uh, checkpoints on a two, two, two lane road uh, because they knew they were going to get a whole bunch of folks who didn't have papers uh, leaving soccer fields on Sunday mornings um, really was what drove me to just really put two and two together about how we romanticize immigration and um, you know, who's a good immigrant, who's worthy of, of an immigration status. And in reality, this is just all part of the same carceral system. Um, so often those are the, if it wasn't because my parents, uh, one, I have the privilege of being the daughter of a reporter and my parents were really, so shout out to the porters out here. Um, and so, uh, you know, I wouldn't have had this exposure. So uh, first of all, thank you for, for telling us your story. Um, stories, because as I'm listening to both of you, I'm, I'm, there's a theme here, right? So there's something about like the experience of your village, like your home, your home site. There's something about like witnessing tensions right there um, and, and seeing things right there if your lived experience right there in proximity and how it 
how it shaped your mindset and what, what how you approach change making and trauma and what you're witnessing. Um, and so I'm, as I'm listening to you, I, I, I heard Clarissa use words like radicalization. And I hear uh, Maya Stefania talking about the spark, right? Um, and I'm wondering, as you all are thinking about this world where we are moving through now pandemic, radical racial change, like help us draw the line from, from that, that starting point that you had to your work, the through line from your work from that starting point to getting us today and how you're framing uh, your approach to community organizing today. Yeah, I was gonna add, I also think you're probably on the same side as Charlotte because Greer Heights is in East Charlotte as well. Um, so probably just down central from each other. Um, yeah, I think the through line very similarly um, is lived experience um, and community like supporting me having the space to grow, heal, um, and like build into my politic. Um, I think when I left Charlotte for school to go to Spelman, um, I was just, you know, your regular nosy journalism high school kid. Um, and now I identify as like a queer black abolitionist um, organizer and cultural worker. Um, so, you know, not what my mom wanted me to be. Um, she still is like, when are you going to be a lawyer? When are you going to run for something? I'm just like, oh, we've got to, got to let that dream go. Um, but the through line is that fighting for a world where kids don't have to experience what I went through, um, what Myra went through, I think really is what keeps me going. Like having like cops, like break into your house when you're like four, um, like Greer Heights was just not, it was an experience, right? I was, I was there until I was 10. And then my mom, I will say, was like very gung-ho about keeping me in the magnet program. So my mom actually moved me around Charlotte to keep me in the magnet program. So I was in Greer Heights. We moved to Pineville so I could go to Smith, which is Waddell. And then she moved me back to First Ward, but I was at South Mech for the language program. Um, so my mother was very clear that like, she fought really hard to make sure I was able to be in programs that would get me to college. But I also know that like of all of my cousins that are the same age as me, like I'm the only one that is not, doesn't have any kids, has not been in jail um, and has not been houseless. Um, and that is a privilege I sit with, but also like just an immense amount of guilt about the realities of capitalism, um, tokenism and what that means for me, right? Like when I'm out in the world, um, I work at uh, Rising Majority, which is a, a coalition movement space. Um, I really do bring all of that with me. And I always try to center myself in the fact of like, is this work getting the people from my neighborhood closer to liberation? Um, and that really feels integral to like what I'm doing um, and, and how I move my politic. So this idea of this through line, I think, and, and the geography, right? Like, you know, we talked a little bit about the proximity to trauma, but there, the, the fact that you all probably were in proximity literally to trauma, but also to a space that was kind of designated to, to, 
to be targeted. So Myra, I know that, you know, you talked about that story where you, you were living in a fishing village. It was first designated to be targeted. Then you come to Charlotte and you live in an area and then you find that they are designating the areas that are have high immigrant populations to be targeted. Uh, I would love for you to talk more about how that through line has shown up in your life um, and has helped shape now you're doing work directly um, not only with sheriff departments and legal aid, but um, helping to shape like advocacy and direct um, direct agency development for people. So I'd love for you to tell us more. Yeah, first of all, you know, I struggle sometimes with like languages um, through line. <laughs> so like the basically like how the continuum, the continuum of your story. Um, I think so, you know, we've been having this conversation, I think a lot of times when I'm <laughs> I struggle trying to tell my community organizing story because I don't have a very clear through line. So this is not this is not just you. <laughs> um, because advocating for educational equity is the, is the connecting point between all of my uh, kind of how I've hopscotched through organizing. I never wanted to Clarissa's point, I never wanted my own daughter to be targeted by the police, but but she was targeted for disciplinary action. I never wanted her to be pulled out of class or to be expelled. Um, but she was that she experienced that. And every time she experienced something, I could feel my I literally I could feel in my body, my heart race because I was going to the school thinking about like if I'm the kind of parent that can show up and go to the school every single time she gets flagged for something. Think about all the parents who can't. Um, and to Clarissa's point about like her mother deliberately moving her to keep her educational experience um, at a certain height. I think about your family experience and like making, trying to make choices to keep you safe, to keep your literal body safe um, so that you could go and pursue opportunities. So it's just like, what is, what are the connecting points for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say one, I mean, my kind of like introduction to this space was one, one through the real lived experiences that I, kind of had and then also um dealing with the real culture shock of moving to the south like moving to the south was something that I don't really think I was prepared for um you know my facial features and my skin tone allowed me a lot of privilege in in, in Massachusetts where there is a large Portuguese community and my dad uh, trying to be as protective as possible, never told me to disclose where I was from, to let people assume. And so I came with this mentality of blending in, people assuming I was a Portuguese descent, and then moving to the South and people automatically listing me as Mexican. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. I didn't know what Mexico was. <laughs> the closest Mexico I had was Puerto Rico. Mm. So um, moving down to the South and just seeing these different shifts in, um, in just like racial tensions, identity, um, not fitting in um, was really challenging for me. And then topping it off with being a preteen and coming into uh, contact with my immigration status. Because what you said about your mom really um, moving you around to different schools really resonated with me. I moved to Charlotte at a time, we were seeing a lot of um, uh, gang recruitment of young Salvadoran um, uh, youth. And I was uh, in a school where there was large recruitment. Um, and so one of the things that my mom decided to do 
was moved me to a school in South Charlotte, actually south of Greer Heights. So um, I went to Randolph, <laughs> which was really damn white. It was super white. And I think when I really think about my journey, I think about how I was somebody, the double consciousness of being somebody of color from East Charlotte, having to be bused to, to, to Randolph and East Mac and having to live in a space where whiteness was predominant and, and whiteness had a pathway. And then um, coming to the conclusion that higher education, um, that employment, that all these opportunities that were being discussed um, and the propaganda that was being told that we could do uh, was not applicable to my situation. Um, so I think how intrigued I was about learning about my immigration status, how, how this played into a broader immigrant rights movement um, and really trying to understand um, just what was, what was the difference between crossing independence and living in the East side and being and seeing sheriff's officers all the time and figuring out that so-and-so was stopped and put in deportation proceedings and moving to uh, uh, Raymer Road or wherever and seeing a whole different reality um, was really challenging for me. But I think, um, you know, I think it really helped me realize that we're, we were living in a bubble, right? Like this is a facade. Um, and we were being pitched the story that was not a, attainable uh, to people of color. Um, and I think definitely around my 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 high school uh, uh, freshman, uh, sorry, my, my senior um, spring break is when I, the, the, it finally really clicked. Um, I had gone to this training in Orlando, had the privilege of going and learning how to do deportation defense campaigns. Um, so it's, it's very similar to just uh, accompaniment campaigns when people don't need community support when they're caught up in jail uh, to help them have either easier releases or lower sentences. And I'd just gone to this training. It was spring break. I had come back. Um, and I was the only person in my neighborhood with a driver's license. And my mom called me. She was at her second job. And she was like, hey, Jesenia's husband got picked up there. He's at this checkpoint. Can you go over there and can you drive? And I drive over there. And I just see, I had never seen this many, like it, it was a special checkpoint. Um, and they were stopping people, putting, pulling them wrong, uh, on the side of the road. This is where Hickory Grove is, Hickory Grove, Pence to give some context. So um, yeah, I just seen people getting questioned about their driver's license and, you know, and then being stopped and being placed in this paddy wagon because they knew that they were most likely undocumented and would be put in removal proceedings and calling my friends and we shut down this um, checkpoint. And that's how we started connecting the dots around how law enforcement and ICE collaboration, just law enforcement are all and overall is the deportation pipeline um, that really initiates um, deportations. And that's kind of where my, more of my understanding of local law enforcement and ICE collaboration began. But it all started with like trying to figure out why <laughs> the five of us who lived off Penn's Road were being buzzed to independence. Mm. I mean, so y'all stories, you know, and people, there's, there's going to be listeners who are not as familiar with the Charlotte geography, but I almost guarantee you have a geography that's, that's like this, right? There's going to be some place where there's a lot of immigrants. There's going to be some place where the socioeconomic diversity is not, is not going to be uh, where people are coming in with uh, the deepest pockets. And the challenges there are for I think is we're thinking about um, organizing because a lot of the organizing that happens in Charlotte and in North Carolina, I think is um, 
catalyzed by people who are experiencing the most hurt. Like it's it's in its compound, right? So it's like, yes, they they are being targeted by police. Yes, they don't have adequate uh, educational experience access. Uh, yes, they are being targeted by law enforcement for immigration issues. Um, yes, they do have or 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 the yeses that they they still are in a food desert usually. It's like these compound layers of lack of access that I think we see. Um, and I think the, maybe the pandemic has exacerbated that for, for some of us. Um, so to, the, to that point, like as we're in this moment, this, this particular moment in North Carolina, what do you think the most critical issue is that's facing us to organize around um, in our communities, particularly communities of color who are being impacted by this compounding, these compounding issues? If you're not, if you're, if you're not already being over police, you're being evicted, or you're going hungry. Um, I think uh, what's so uniquely different about this current moment is people were already being over police, were all already being evicted, and are already going hungry. But there's there's no saving grace because the system is not dealt, it's not created to really get us out of the impoverished conditions that it's put us through or the over-policing. Um, the system is working to continue to do that, um, especially even more so um, right now. Like, of course people are profiting off of the evictions. There's gonna be great house sales going on. The fact that people are going hungry, that's irrelevant, right? And so um, I, I, I think there's so many real issues that are happening right now that are affecting us in so many ways. Yeah, um, I was also just thinking about the geography of, um, I think our neighborhoods were probably just like a Walmart away from each other. Um, and also just like where the immigrant pockets in Charlotte are, like um, my boyfriend in high school was Liberian and a lot of folks lived on Central, um, like a lot of immigrants live up and down Central, um, near Noda, which has become hipster Central. Um, but yeah, I think the thing that's most critical to move around, and I will say like, I'm thinking about like Elizabeth City right now. Um, I'm thinking about like the reality that like not every place is Charlotte, Durham, Raleigh, Greensboro, um, that, I can say for myself, the police have never made me feel safe. They've never been central to my understanding of safety. Um, so as an abolitionist, like I, it is critical for me to support people in their radicalization to abolishing policing in cages of all kinds. Um, I also know that like that is really hard to do in rural places. Um, it's extremely hard to do in Charlotte and Charlotte is probably one of the most conservative cities of all of the organizing cities in North Carolina, um, which I found really difficult as an organizer because by the time I got to college, I was like, all right, I'm ready to burn it all down. Um, and then coming back to North Carolina and realizing that like Charlotte has some of the worst organizing ecosystems, right? You go to Durham, you go to other places, right? Like Charlotte is a, is a business town um, and it prioritizes that and its legacy. Can you talk um, to me about some of your experiences in other places? Because I think mm -hmm. North Carolina, like you're saying, uh, the Durham ecosystem for organizing looks yeah. so very different. So and, strong, um, yeah. 
you know, Creed is doing work across the state. We, if it literally feels different in Greensboro <laughs> versus Wilmington, you know, right. yep. Wilmington people whisper to us yes. about the Wilmington race. Massacre. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like they literally whisper. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's such a different energy in every place that we're seeing. What are you, what are you kind of seeing as you're going to different places and you've lived in different places and Mari, you certainly have uh, experiences across the state. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think also the, um, I think something that I found difficult leaving Charlotte and coming back and learning about the legacy was that the movement was really destroyed like quickly in Charlotte. Um, the leftist movement in Charlotte for like the Panthers, like there was a Panther party that lasted, I think maybe two years in Charlotte and then it disappeared. Um, my grandfather says he was a part of it. I don't believe that, but um, Charlotte just does not have the same legacy of organizing that other cities do. It doesn't mean it doesn't have resistance. It doesn't mean there aren't stories from Johnson C. Smith and um, students that haven't been mobilizing, but Charlotte has just been so centered around the church around banks, around gold, um, that it's just been a city that just has always had a more conservative politic. Um, I will say it does feel different in places like Durham and Greensboro uh, because they have more young people, they have more colleges um, and they're just closer knit, I think. Uh, Durham has a really beautiful like black queer and trans organizing community. Song is there, BYP 100 is there. Black University does a lot of work out there too. Um, and so, yeah, I, I will say that is something that I am always frustrated by is when I talk to people, they're like, oh, you are from Durham, you're from this place. And I'm just like, no, Charlotte. And they're just like, oh, that's that's cool. Um, oh, you whisper Charlotte? Oh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't whisper it, but I will say like, people are just like, when I talk to organizers, outside of North Carolina, Atlanta, Minneapolis, Brooklyn, all those places, Oakland, they have literally never met anybody from Charlotte who organizes actively, that has a radical politic. Um, mm-hmm. I've met dozens upon dozens of organizers from North Carolina, but I really rarely meet people from Charlotte born and raised. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think when I think about, I completely agree with you and how I've been working in the Raleigh-Durham area on immigrant rights CJ work for the past going on two years now. And I recently like went on a Facebook rant. I just bought the whole like infrastructure, like 501c3 included. Like there's just, there's no interested. It's, um, I don't even know how to explain it, but we fight for crumbs. We literally fight for crumbs and we do not prioritize the real work. And just really learning from communities, uh, from indigenous like, monolingual speakers who are organizing and doing incredible work in the Raleigh-Durham area and then watching um, how quickly we throw each other under the bus in the Charlotte area is just really sad. Um, But I think um, a few years ago, I wanted to really understand where we live as Latin Americans and as immigrant communities in in Charlotte because we're so segregated. I go to Raleigh. Raleigh, yes, does have segregation, but the segregation is different is different than here. Um, and when I think of, and, and I, so I picked up this book, I was like, let me read about it. Let me, let me learn more Charlotte history. You know, one, it really has to do with the way that the, whatever city council can't get any approval for any type of gentrification or fixture they want to do, they'll just go to the banks and Hugh McCall is going to give them X amount of money to get Absolutely. Money. And mm-hmm. then, um, I mean, that's just the reality, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, 
the other thing is, you know, through reading this book, I was like, what was so intentional about moving? Like, what was, what is the, why are we here? Right? Like there's always migration patterns that bring us somewhere. And at the end of the day, the Latin American community is here because of the banks, because Absolutely. of labor. Um, and the reason they, we were settled on Central Avenue was an intentional, was intentional to separate white folks from black folks. Absolutely. So um, I think that, you know, Charlotte has done a really good job of using, you know, it's, it's and, and I know we all work for 513s here, or some of us do, but I mean, it's, it's really done a really good job of mobilizing its funds um, mm -hmm. in a way that foundations in the city dictate what can and can't be done. Whew. Come on. Who is going to be, you know, who, what organization is going to stay alive and isn't? Yep. Um, I, you know, when I first got involved in this space, I worked with the Latin American Coalition. We were calling people out. Mind you, I was like a little baby 16-year-old organizer doing, <laughs> putting down um, uh, checkpoints. But really quickly, the system realized that, oh, these kids are being radicalized, right? Like these kids are going in a pathway. How do we shut this down? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's been really sad. And uh, when I see what we're trying to build with the immigrant rights space here, it's just there's no interest to support this work internally. We really need to look at outside support for it. Um, and I mean, one of the things that I've really been talking about with folks within Colectiva has been on how can we support each other to keep on building? Right. Um, because there's not a lot of people doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was going to add, I, I think something that I've struggled so much with when it comes to Charlotte organizing is this idea of hierarchy and this claim that it has on how we understand organizing, right? People are fighting for a panel spot. They're fighting for a flyer. They're fighting for funds from a foundation, um, claim to some sort of social capital. Um, and I, and I always struggle with that because there are amazing black leaders in Charlotte, even in the arts area and all these places, but like everybody's fighting for crumbs and everybody will kill each other to get to those crumbs. Um, and going back to Charlotte with some of my like radical organizing experience and being like, I have no interest in claim. I have no interest in social capital. I want to make sure my people are good because I've noticed personally that like poor black folks on the West side where Boulevard Homes is like, folks aren't interested in organizing because they have bills to pay. They have jobs, their kids need to be fed. They have light bills that need to be paid. They can't show up for the work because their needs aren't being met. And I cannot personally name an organization in Charlotte not connected to the city or the state that provides those needs for people so that they can mobilize. Um, and that's always been my frustration. And also my frustration with like radical leftist groups in Charlotte is this hyper focus on like, we support the people, but it's only certain people and they actually don't interact with like poor black people on the ground like they are not going to west boulevard they're not going to winchester they're not going to the walmarts they're not talking to folks at laundromats um it is just already super radicalized um uh, people who know the language know the seas um which is cool but like can you talk to my aunt Carolyn who lives on the west side about abolition right that that's my critical question um and oftentimes they can't um and so, yeah, that, that's always been my, my critique and also understanding that my trust and my faith is always gonna be in black people. Um, and I have to keep it there, right? I gotta struggle, I gotta be in conversation with folks, I gotta build, right? Like um, when Makia Bryant was killed by police last week, um, which last week feels like a year ago, 
um, I was on the phone with my mom because I was like, I mean, just weeping. Um, I was just like, I don't, I don't want to understand the weight of having a black child in this world. But also, I was so grateful for how much work my mom put into keeping me alive. Um, and when I talked to her, she was on some, we need to segregate, <laughs> we need to get some land in Arizona. And I was like, my mother is on this tip. And like, that's shocking to me because I've never heard my mother be like, this is it. We've, we've got to go. Um, I was quite shocked to hear that other people in my family are just like, have no faith and no trust in the, in the state and in the, in the police. Um, and that took time. That took watching these things happen. Um, but it also took pressuring, right? I've had to get, I have to walk with my mom through the homophobia, through the transphobia. We still struggle through those things with her, um, with my own identities. But uh, it's been critical to see her political shift um, and that trust, right? Like our people can get there, right? Our people understand their experiences. Um, they just have to know that people, somebody's going to be there to, to walk with them through that process because who I was when I got to college and who I am now are very different. Uh, but that took love and trust for people to pour into me. I'm so glad that you just said that um, because I've, as we've been having this conversation. I'm kind of making mapping out these ideas that you all are surfacing around uh, what it means to be uh, the token black or the good immigrant. What mm -hmm. it and then to, to have your identity uh, and to, to be pushed into a radicalization and a catalyst moment of like watching something happen, so watching an injustice happen, and saying to yourself like, oh, like well, that's not right. Like why am why is there a certain intersection where we being pulled over to the side of the road why is there um wh why is it that i can watch black body at this point i can watch black bodies being um murdered on television every single week so asking ourselves some questions like why are my community being targeted what are the access point um what are the obstacles when people are um attempting to organize for themselves if, if you know if they if they can't eat if they feel unsafe if they're just trying to survive there's going to be real obstacles to getting them to, to organize and to have an, an organizing mindset. Um, and so you all were naming some real critical challenges, you know, and uh, Myra, you, you you were really flowing there for a minute. You were talking about this, this fight for crumbs in particularly in Charlotte. Um, and I, I've seen that replicated in North Carolina, but it's not quite the same because there's not that much money as there is here. Like there's money concentrated here. Um, and so you talked about, uh, Carissa was talking about the resistance um, showing up in certain areas because there's a high concentration of young people and those people are well networked and so i'm as, as you all are talking i'm trying to i'm trying to like find a shift through sift through the seeds of, of these kind of chunks of like uh, these little seeds that we can plant for bringing a community organizing mindset to north carolina so you know we've talked about the trauma and the challenges we've talked about where we've seen people fight for crumbs and fight to be at the top of the pile that's not a very high pile in the first place um and we've we've seen how um, systems have been manipulated by philanthropy how can we talk about what uh what needs to happen next like what would be your vision of a well-organized north carolina that knows its place in the world and what does that mean for people and what does that mean for for uh the state what's your vision for that i mean i think we all organize with a mentality of trying to figure out how to have autonomous people whose like basic needs are completely met. Um, and I mean, I think a North Carolina that would provide that would look nothing like the current North Carolina we live in. Um, you know, I think 
there's just so many things there from the fact that it takes you so long to get from Eastern North Carolina into, <laughs> into the Piedmont to the fact that, um, you know, we're seeing, um, sorry, you know, we're seeing crazy bills right now to, uh, like we can't, it took forever. It, uh, so in my job, I, I do some legislative work and it took so long to even get one sheriff within the sheriff's association to agree that shackling black women while in labor was not okay. Um, like, I think just, we're so, <laughs> we, we have all these structural problems around just like valuing each other's humanity and acknowledging humanity. And then, um, Dream with me for a second, Myra. Like, what what is the vision? Like, where are we? we and I know what I know what the reality is. I, I know we're fighting to be seen as humans. I know that reality. Yeah. What's the What's the dream? Like, where's the vision going? Um, I think the vision for me is um, we wouldn't have detention centers. We wouldn't have jails. Um, we wouldn't have white men dictating what we need or don't need. Um, we have, would have communities who are able to make those decisions on their own. Um, we have, would have communities that are fed, communities that are free to dream and execute those dreams, I think most importantly. Um, yes. And I think, you know, I, I think just like not fear of walking in the what if. I had my brother walk, um, I pick him up from school and I was 20 minutes late. This is shortly after the young man was killed out in Chicago. And knowing that just simply walking down University City Boulevard to the Marshalls was such a big risk and like driving ridiculously fast to get there. Um, and so just that, just like the opportunity to walk without a heavy burden on your shoulders is just so much. Yeah, that's real. Um, I... I don't get too woo-woo in the movement space because the mother I have is the mother that I have. But um, I think land back was like the first thing that, that popped up in my head, right? Giving native folks back their, their, their sovereign land feels really important just to respect the land that we're on. This is like work that all of our ancestors did. And I think to acknowledge that first feels really critical. Um, very similarly, a world without cages, a world without policing. Um, a world where Black girls get to be safe and get to dream. Um, I think that's a world that I've always been dreaming of. Um, as somebody who was like, I think I was kicked out of my classes at South Meg pro probably every day um, because attitude, dress code, existing, breathing, um, all those things. So a, a world where, where Black kids are safe. Um, and I think also a place where we get to decide what that looks like. Um, I will say the, the beauty of my family that I rarely acknowledge is that we did keep each other safe often. Uh, maybe not always in the best ways. There were definitely some fights at multiple cookouts, but folks didn't call the cops, you know? Uh, folks dealt with their issues within the family um, in good and bad ways, but, but more specifically, I really learned what it meant to show up for community from my aunts, from my mother, from my cousins. Um, when somebody needed to stay over, when somebody's lights were off, my cousins would stay over with us, we'd go over there. Um, and I really learned what it means to show up for 
Black people for community autonomously without state intervention from those people. Um, and so it, it doesn't feel like a far jump for me to say that that world is possible because I've seen it in really minute ways, um, complicated ways, not easy ones. Um, everybody could have got some therapy, um, but it happens. Um, and I really do put that at the core of my politic um, because that that is how we kept each other safe. And all of those other things of state intervention and police and CMS and all those things happened not because we requested them, not because folks were begging for police involvement, but because things had reached a level where folks were unsafe and they felt like that was what was needed. But um, yeah, I'm really grateful for, for that beginning. So I had invited you all to share with the listeners um, just one kind of parting inspiration. So I asked you to look at or think about someone who has inspired you in your work um, and to either give us a quote or bring something, a story, a moment of their of their inspiration to you, bring it to us um, so we can share that out to the world. So as we're leaving here, then we're leaving on the note of uh, aspirational vision and how do we inspire each other. So I would love to hear what you all you all have to say and, and what you want to put out into the world and just to double check these are people from north carolina or just people in general people from north carolina if you got them and people in general if you don't i'm super basic i always say my mom um you know my mom and what i just think about my mom moved us across various countries she learned a new language um she took care of us on her own, all three of us. Um, and sometimes I think like we talk about organizers and we think about, you know, folks like Ella Baker and, and other big wigs, but we don't talk about sometimes the the small organizers that have made or make dents and make me impact impacts in our lives. And I just think about how yes, my mom was a reporter and and had the privilege of doing these things. Um and yet did a lot of unjournalistic things, right? She went out of her way to figure out how to help um, so-and-so who was in removal proceedings, so-and-so who lost their child and really was intentional about bringing us into that space um, because we were always needed to be there for each other. Um, that's, I would say, you know, as cliche as it sounds, my mom, my David Ortega. Hey, I, I know your mom, so I, I, I support that. <laughs> and thank you for that, Carissa. Yeah, I I'm gonna say my I'm gonna say my grandma Macy because very similarly, like I truly did understand and learn resiliency from her. Um, and really I'm always trying to like live out the things that she wasn't able to. Um, in the sense of like she wanted to travel, she wanted to go to college, she wanted to do all these things. So I really uh am kind of always hoping that she's proud of me for um parting from the family in the ways that I did. Um, but I think as an organizer, I'm always looking to Ella Baker. I'm always looking to Toni Morrison um, and Toni K. Bambara specifically in their work. Uh, Joy James is one of my favorite scholars as well. Uh, just understanding, you know, the limitations of theory, the limitations of all the big words, um, but it really does bring me back to the core of why do I do this work? Um, I was listening to a Joy James presentation she did last week where she talked about like what is the point of this work if we're not acknowledging how the poorest people die 
and the people that die first. Um, and when I heard that statement, I was like, that's me, that's my family, that's my neighborhood, those are my people. Um, and if this work is not critical to them and what they want, then, uh, you know, I don't, think it, I don't think it's doing the thing that I think it should be. We can use all the big words and fancy jargon, but if it's not reaching the masses, then it's, it's not getting anybody free. Um, so I wanted to share mine because we've invoked her name many times, but I, I would love to share a, a quote that I uh, think about often as I'm organizing, and that is from Ella Baker. And she said, this may only be a dream of mine, but I think it can be made real. And so as I'm talking to you all about your dreams, your hopes, your wishes for North Carolina and thinking about autonomous communities and communities that show up for each other, respect each other, see each other, keep each other safe. Um, you know, I think I, I'm so glad that we gave ourselves so much permission on this, this podcast to, to dream together. And I'm so glad I was able to dream with you all. So thank you for your time today. Um, thank you for joining on the Margins podcast. And we are going to be looking forward to staying in contact with you all and to see um, see what great things you have happening. You're at the starts of your career. Um, well, actually, y'all are both of y'all are well into your career, but at the start of your life. And so we'll, we'll keep tracking. <laughs> we'll keep pace with it. Um, and, and I'm so glad that I've been able to lock elbows with both of you all. And